Hey there, thanks for tapping into this episode. If you're a hater, bullish, or curious outsider, the world of Web3 has been a very hot topic for the past two years. Now, with the very swift and heavy crash in the crypto market, and, well, the financial market in general, it started with Terra's stablecoin debacle, then on through to the time of this recording, where Bitcoin is hovering around 20000 with frequent dips below. I think from time to time, when the conditions of the market has it arise within me, a particular J.P. Morgan quote comes to mind. For the uninitiated, that's the person who gave their name to J.P. Morgan's side of Chase Bank. He said this when asked by a journalist what the market is going to do. His answer was very simple. It'll fluctuate. To me, that sums up the current dip in Web3 quite well, and well, generally, the market, if you look at it from a long enough period of time, it's volatile. There's a natural cycle in things, where growth will explode, then contract, strengthening up the remaining few, forcing them to adapt and become more resilient. Something kind of like evolution. Which is really the crux of it. I'm not sure what the future of Web3 will be, If it'll have Bitcoin as a global currency, skirting around countries, forcing them to move towards their better angels, or if Ethereum and Chainlink will become the hot platform that the whole of the internet is built upon, and if an NFT will be the new way for financial independence for artists, skirting the middlemen that now serve as the gatekeepers and more dynamically control the algorithms and how their content gets served up, which equates to money for them. See, the thing is about new technologies is that how it goes from idea to inception to scale, just about anything can happen. It can have a huge hit or a huge failure. Xerox invented the modern paradigm for computers. Think about that. The copy machine company we don't even think about in our daily discourse invented the idea of a screen interface, keyboard, mouse, The very way we interact with computers was invented at Xerox. Kodak came up with a digital camera far before the market was flooded with them, which ultimately became their downfall. How the twists and turns of coming to life will happen for Web3 isn't fully certain, but to my big delight, my guest for this interview came closest to what I personally see the future of it as. The foundation of what blockchain is, and particular Bitcoin, is well chronicled in our episode 32, where I chat with Professor Marav Azair about blockchain. If you want a deep dive, jump over there. But what I'll say picking up from that conversation is that one of the big innovations of blockchain is the smart contract. What NFTs even are is possible because of the contract that dictates how many of them there are and who owns it. Decentralized finance, where your money is moved around automatically based off what you've programmed into it, like taking a portion out of your monthly check and dropping it into investments, paying down loans. You can even think of it as your own personal stock trading bot turned financial advisor. All of that possibility is because of the smart contract technology. The other part of this is that Web3 is not about using a technology that completely throws away everything from the internet foundations that came before it. 
And if someone is telling you that, they're likely not understanding it or selling you a grift. It's not web one, then web two, then web three. It's web two plus web three. Websites, flat websites that you just read were web one. They're still around. Closed sites with logins and cloud servers, that's web two. They're not going anywhere. Blockchain is web three, and it's just starting. When someone asks me, when's a good time to build in web three components to software? My answer is always, it depends on what you're trying to do. Just like somebody asking you, when's a good time to use an X-Acto knife? Though if you want a great example for one way, and if you ask me the likely mixed stack of technologies the web is going to have moving forward, is using blockchain for interoperability, where you can go from one gated platform to another, but are able to bring your data along with you. Think if you had all of your tweets that were yours, actually, and not Twitter's. And if you didn't like Twitter anymore, you can go, you can go to someone else's version of it, taking all your tweets and followers and people you follow with you. If you want a different look to it, algorithm, controls, or different community altogether, you can just pack up and leave. The part of that that gets particularly fun is when you think about smart contracts a bit further and their ability to mimic contracts that we take for granted and exist all around us every day. The first one that Bitcoin and crypto fanatics leveraged and geeked out on is purchases, something we completely take for granted. How we sign our names when we're purchasing something with a visa, tacitly signing the contract of your purchase. What about your hotel agreement when you check in, with all those scary notices about fines for smoking in the room and all? A step further, a house lease. All of that can exist on a blockchain programmed and much easier to access when you have questions than flying through your email looking for the PDF of your lease agreement. That rental industry has barely even entered digital anything. And my guest today is looking to make you jump straight to Web3. My guest JW is one of the founders of Stay365, a website looking to take on Airbnb with a Web3 angle where users can own their own data, and where Stay365 takes the first crack at setting the standard for smart contract in the rental and travel industry. JW is a truly brilliant dude, with smarts and drive that no doubt are going to bring him many adventures. I found Stay365 from JW's brilliant Twitter marketing strategy, which turns out has something to do with him starting the company as well, which we get into. This interview gets into what State 365 is and what it's looking to do, the promise of Web3, what it's like building with Web3, and if State 365 is yet a true Web3 platform, before going deep on the second half about economics, politics, and of course, if I'm talking, what we are as a species. State 365 is having a token sale starting on the 29th of June for all those interested and you can check them out and their white paper and really everything about them on stay365.com. And with that, no further ado, my interview with JW. Real quick before the episode begins, if you like what you hear, please tap that follow or subscribe button. You also can find this episode, 
all episodes in the series, or check out our Daily Minute podcast by visiting us at bandwidth.productions. All right, cool. There should be some bongs along with the countdown. But thank you again for taking the time. Glad we were able to uh, get connected. Um, Would you please introduce yourself? Then I'll ask you a question, and we're going to get into it. Yeah, sure. My name's Josh. I'm the co-founder and the COO of stay365.com. We're a Web3 travel platform, and we've got a vision that involves a lot more than just travel, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Thank you for having me on your podcast, by the way. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited to talk with you. I'm I'm really geeked about a lot of things in Web3. Uh, not everything, because there's a lot of grift, but mm-hmm. I'm geeked in a lot of things, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, but first, so the first time I have somebody on the show, I always ask them the same question. So I want to ask it to you, which is, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Well, it's very fitting, um, and you could probably guess the answer, but I love to travel. I love to explore new places, new cultures, meet new people. I think some of the most enlightening conversations I've ever had in my life have been at 3 a.m., sat outside a random cafe in somewhere I I don't entirely know where I am. And it's just the freshness of the surroundings and speaking to someone new. That's what makes me truly happy. I could dig that. Yeah, the the sense of wonder. Um, I also think there's some magic that happens around like 3, 4 a.m., no matter where you are. So that, that as well is, is quite astute. Yeah, I think it kind of kicks off. When you get past 12, you know, you get to one, two, then people start to go home. Everybody who's still waiting outside the bars, outside the cafes at three to four to 5 a.m., there seems to be some kind of spiritual alignment where everybody shifts into a kind of different sense of being. Oh, yeah, no, I, I do think there's something, um, dare I say, cosmic about it. My, my personal opinion is that nothing is awake or alive at 4 a.m., it's like the weird time where it's like almost where all the nocturnal animals are going to sleep and all of the, you know, daytime animals are starting to come up and stir. And I think there's just something in that air that gets everybody almost a sense of tranquility. Mm. Um, and especially when you're like traveling, because then it's like everything is new. If you're someplace that's foreign enough, right? Like if you're uh, traveling somewhere, that's like getting that, getting you out of yourself. Yeah, right? certainly. I think, you know, when you're first going out and exploring a new city or exploring a new part of the world, it's unfamiliar at first and you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I think that's a good thing. And as you start to settle in and you know, you, you, you build up that mental map of the area, you start to become familiar with some of the local spots that you keep going back to, you start to build up that sense of, of confidence in where you are. And I think that's a really big thing. The fact that even after just a week or a few days or a month of being somewhere new, it starts to feel like a second home sometimes if you're in the right place, or if not that, then just a really lovely place where you can be, where you can feel more like yourself, or at first, if you're thrust into a new area, um, it takes a while to get to used to it. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there another uh, guest on the show, actually, who's been on a few times, he's British as well, mm. ironically enough, uh, but he's a historian, his name is Felipe Fernandez Armesto, and he said something to me that, like, has stuck with me and I've actually chatted with him since and I'm like, you know what you told me, I, I, I'm really thinking about it a lot, which is, uh, he said, comfort is the enemy of progress. And I think, you know, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations that are safe, obviously, um, is a great thing for you to like both explore yourself and grow as a person. And I think traveling is a nice sense of being able to do that in a way, um, that most of us don't get to, like our routines are completely shaken up, you know, sometimes like, okay, for example, when I was in Germany, um, 
it's one of the only places in the world I've ever traveled that I, ironically enough, even though I'm German, I have a German last name, I look super <laughs> German, uh, I don't know any of the language. Um, where like even when I was in France, like I could, I could knew enough to get along. Uh, Italy the same. And when I was there, it was so enlightening of an experience because I had people coming up to me on the street talking to me in German <laughs> as if I would be able to understand what they were saying. Uh, and simple things like going to a cafe or something where no one spoke English, um, it really forced you know, a sense of difference and routine where like I, w I was walking out of it after I got acclimated a little bit to get to the point of like, okay, this is the kebab place. This is where I go here and getting like oriented to the city that it allowed like a sense of inspiration that wasn't existing before. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's funny you say about the, um, the comfort thing at the beginning. That's one of probably my personal mottos in life is that it applies to me. I know not everybody agrees with this, but for me, if I'm moving, if I'm feeling too comfortable, then I know that I'm not moving fast enough. You know, if you ever get too comfortable, if you ever get, you know, to a place in life where you're like, oh, you know, it's all good. I haven't, I haven't done too much in a few months. That's when you need to just get up and start moving again. Totally. So um, shifting into into stage 365, how did you get started? It was a really funny, uh, I, I met somebody, I met my co-founder, um, Paul, through a client I had. I, I'll, take you, I'll take you through the, 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 the background of it. So originally, uh, I dropped out of university when I was uh, 19 to begin focusing on businesses. Because I, I, I went to uni to learn business management with a focus on entrepreneurship. At the time, after doing it for a few months, it didn't feel right. And I didn't want to be, you know, just studying. I wanted to be out there doing things, building my own company. So I dropped out when I was 19, um, moved back down to, to where I'm living now and started to begin with just to find my feet um, doing freelance social media marketing. So I'd go around all the local businesses in my area and knock on the windows and go in and speak to people until, you know, I could secure a meeting or sold them or kind of like, I, I think I charge about 200 or 300 pounds a month just to be posting on their social media every day. So I was just doing that. I built up a few people and I came across this juice bar and I was just knocking on, they, they were setting up, it was a, a new shop and I was just knocking on the window just consistently until somebody said yes and let me in. I was like, I was not going to stop knocking until somebody let me into that shop. Um, we started talking and then I you know, eventually started working together. A few months down the line, the pandemic happened. And so all of my clients immediately, you know, I lost all, all of uh, the, the stuff that I built up over the past few months. Um, all the shops shut, restaurants shut. And primarily I was doing mainly those restaurants and kind of um, the, the very people focused businesses. So we couldn't continue once the pandemic hit. So I had a few months um, really quiet and then uh, I got reached out to by one of my past clients and they said, hey, um, we want to have another meeting with you. So I went, met them, and it was a really strange kind of sense because they, they wanted to start another business. And we started talking about the possibility of starting a travel company. It was only meant to be about, you know, a half an hour meeting, ended up being, I think, three and a half hours. We just couldn't stop talking about Stay 365 as it came to be. So from that moment on, like from this meeting, we kind of knew that we were going to start making this company. And over the next few months, we got everything set up. And, you know, for the around about 18 months ago, I think that meeting was, we officially started working on the company maybe about 14, 16 months ago, uh, built up the, the website, um, sort of working in stealth mainly to begin with, and then kind of launched on Twitter um, about two or three months back and had, you know, an incredible reception. One of our first tweets that we posted 
went viral, got 2 million views, uh, 25,000 likes. You know, and it, it, that was a real validation by the market of our idea. And we knew then that we had something, this combination of a travel website, but uh, going into real estate too with uh, crypto and NFT focuses. And we can go more into that later, but that's just the, the kind of overview of how the company came to be. That's super exciting. Talk about uh, taking lemons into lemonade. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, could you give us a brief understanding? By the way, I found you because of that Twitter thread that blew up. Um, I have like a bunch of bots and different things. Um, I'm actually taking June off of social media, uh, <laughs> but typically I have all these different like pages and lists and bots that I have that actually find me interesting things on Twitter. Um, and it came back with your, I think it was, it wasn't the first thing you posted. It was one of the other ones um, and talking about, uh, which is the camp campaign I've seen a few times you run, which is like, if you have a crypto wallet and use Airbnb engage with this tweet, um, which is brilliant marketing by the way. Um, so could you give us, before we dive in a little bit further, what is Stay365 and kind of what's your vision and mission for it? Sure. So Stay365 is a Web3 travel company. And, you know, to explain what I mean by a Web3 travel company, we have to look at, you know, Web1 and Web2 first. So, you know, if you don't know the timeline of the Internet, you know, Web1 started way back with static web pages. You know, you could read. And that was it. Web one equals you can read. So it's Wikipedia pages, university pages. The, the, the internet was a one-sided static entity that you could engage with in a very limited way. Web two came around and that introduced a new sort of dimension to how people could interact with the, the internet and how people could interact with each other. So it took Web one, the fact that you could read and also introduced the ability that you could publish and you could write onto the internet. So it became not just a static uh, unchanging entity, but something that was engaging and that was reactive and that was something that people really wanted to be a part of. This led to, you know, internet shopping, uh, social media, new ways for people to connect, new levels of uh, efficiency of transacting, probably by an order of magnitude. You know, this is one of the, the vertical changes where it's a real 10x, it's an order of magnitude uh, improvement upon the previous iteration. Web3 is what we're just starting to see now. And that can be characterized by the ability to own some of your data too. So moving away from Facebook or Uber or Airbnb, all the interactions you make on these sites, if the website shuts down, you don't own any of your data. Everything that you've contributed and that you've posted on the site is gonna be lost forever. When you introduce Web3, you know, you could own your Airbnb reviews. You could own your rating on Uber. You could own your Facebook posts. So even if there was a nuclear winter and these sites shut down forever, you still have your data. That is something that you own and that you know, none of these companies could take away from you. So in the, you know, in the uh, context of Web3 travel, it means that fundamentally as a user, you own your data. You, it's a rewarding and engaging experience. I'll give you an example. For example, if you're on Airbnb, you're a host, you've spent a few years hosting guests and you've built up your reviews, all of a sudden you decide you want to go over to like booking.com or you want to go over to Stay365. You have to start from scratch again. So all those years of social proof that you've built up, that's really the only thing you have to differentiate you from anybody else on these platforms, you, know, you can't take that with you, it's lost. So we want to introduce this element of ownership to hosts. So uh, representing reviews as, a, as an NFT that can be written and updated as you require reviews. And then that could be owned by the user and exported all around the internet to whichever platform you go to. 
There's a lot of other use cases that we can take from that, such as ownership of your travel history, introducing a digital passport that gets stamped as you travel. People love to you know, show off and flex, and with the blockchain, that is a definitive proof that you have visited 11 countries in the last two years, you know? Okay, first off, that was an impeccable breakdown of Web3. I couldn't have done it better myself. That was amazing. Um, and also the use case that you're playing with is awesome. I mean, being able to tangibly mint the NFTs for reviews or like you said, flexing, I think is great, um, is amazing. Like that is such a great thing of, of making, hey, like you're creating social value, you're creating value for the platform. And instead of only having that be value for the platform, how about we shift that to be value for you and you can take it anywhere. Um, that's amazing. That, that's a really interesting ecosystem. And I think what you're doing is really like the first groundwork work into how can this type of Web3 world work in the future where, you know, now there's State 365, but, you know, honestly, I think this type of environment is going to breed more competition between platforms where right now it's like you have Airbnb or you have like VRBO or things like that. But the quality between platforms from Airbnb and the next one down is, you know, quite staggering where, you know, in a world where people and hosts and um, even people can move from platform to platform with their their social proof, as you put it, um, I think it's going to probably make for better platforms overall, as opposed to just creating a bunch of walled gardens that, you know, it's it's a monopoly you're pretty much forced to play with, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think monopolies are natural and I think monopolies will still emerge out of Web3 just by the nature of, you know, the more you, you know, the more you improve, the more that becomes an exponential curve. But it's going to allow scuffles in the short term. Right. It's going to allow those on the ground fights between businesses to see who can really create the best product when everything else is a little bit more flattened out. You know, the cumulative advantage that companies can acquire by trapping people on their platform due to network effects such as Airbnb, such as Facebook, right. that all gets wiped out a little bit when you introduce this element of the user owning their data. Then the focus isn't on about who can create the most progress and trap the most people in their ecosystem. Then the focus is on who can iteratively improve their product until there is nothing left to improve. You know, a lot more along the philosophy of if we build it, they will come. That will become a reality as this sort of competitive landscape is slightly changed by the introduction of NFTs. And there's a whole load of, you know, one of the things I'm most excited about introducing NFTs into essentially the commoditization of a lot more goods and services is the fact that it can create an additional transactional layer on top of the primary. So you can see that right now in sneaker reselling, you know, Nike will release a limited edition drop. Everybody will scramble around with their bots or, you know, super fast keyboard typing to get the, the new Jordans. Then, you know, the next day, if you look on StockX or eBay or any of these other secondary marketplaces, you can get them for three or four times the price. So that's the example of a primary and a secondary transaction layer. I think we're going to begin to see these primary and secondary transaction layers built into the, the platforms themselves. So one thing that we're looking at doing is creating an option for, say, you know, there's a, a conference in New York City and every hotel room is booked up. Well, why couldn't you book a hotel room that is represented by an NFT and then resell it? So it creates mm. arbitration opportunities on this uh, secondary layer. I think platforms that build this into their products will have an advantage moving forward. That is, yeah, that is great. Um, 
Yeah, or I mean, there's so many different ways of doing that. You can even do it with ticket sales, like pre-sales versus, you know, the late registration. Like you see that with a lot of events, like, you know, you get it now and you get it for a certain price. And then there's four different tiers of, you know, when each of those sell out, um, you know, that, that type of model is easily blown out to more things, I think, which is what you're getting at when you said that it's starting as like a Airbnb like competitor, but your, your vision of it's quite wider, um, which is all very exciting. Uh, yeah, and, and I do think what you said, you know, monopolies are a natural part. I think they're kind of a natural part. I'm not sure how familiar you are with complexity theory, um, but it's like a weird unified science theory where it's kind of like brings in math, physics, biology, all those type of things. Essentially what it says is systems inherently get more complex over time, um, but ultimately one thing tends to win out, become hyperdominant, and then it crumbles because it's hyperdominant, which is kind of the natural order of things. I think, you know, you see it with businesses, monopolies, and then something comes and upends them kind of like uh netflix was streaming and all that it upended it and now all of a sudden netflix has had a monopoly for a minute uh, and now it's starting to kind of crumble again um, i think that kind of happens with a lot of different things um, i think we're starting to see that with even uber and all that um so that's that's i think you're hitting things on the head that's very an interesting layer and breakdown um where are you at right now with your build so i mean like to give you some background like i i think we've actually talked about this uh, I do consulting and I do software development consulting and I've actually worked a lot on blockchain going back, I think 2015 was the first time I played with it, um, actually like building something. Um, where now there's so many more different protocols, there's so many different chains, there's different layers, like the idea of like a layer two application where you have a, a blockchain on top of a blockchain was like never even thought of back then. Um, how are you building it? How are you finding building this, like the raw tech of it, since you know both the use case you're using is, is blazing a trail um, it's a, it's an incredibly applicable and, uh, tangible use case for NFTs, which I think in the mainstream people haven't really seen yet. Um, and I'm curious to see how the raw tech of building it has been going. Yeah. So, you know, right now we decided to get the fundamentals of the platform in place. So as of right now, there isn't too many web three fe uh, features built on. It's essentially a web two platform that we've built. This was intentional because we wanted to come to market with a finished product, albeit an, uh, an MVP, an improved upon MVP, um, unlike many of the other projects we see emerging, especially in the travel space right now, mm -hmm. where there are a lot of unfinished products or no products at all and people come to market with just an idea. We wanted to come to market with something that shows just the shadow of what our vision is going to be. So we've got, and this is, this is a time for a quick shameless self plug. We've got our token sale on the 29th of June. So in about just under uh, three weeks time, um, our token sale is going to be selling stays token. And that is going to provide us the capital to actually build out the web three features of the site. At the moment we've invested, you know, six figures of our own capital into building the product up to where it is. And we just we want the community to be owning the tokens and the transactional means of the website. And then we're going to build out from there. So we're going to be raising enough money and we hope to be building the, the first Web3 features of the site early July, as soon as this token sale is concluded. That's great, though. That's I mean, honestly, uh, as somebody who builds these type of things, that's the way that I would have done it as well. Um, build the site first, make it usable, give people an idea of what it is, and then build the Web3 layers in because... Um, Web3 has gotten a lot better. <laughs> it's like the idea of contracts and um, Ethereum really drove the, the line on that and, and making it easier for developers. 
um, but it still takes time to get it right. So mm. thoughtfully making a platform first before uh, expanding out into Web3, I think, is, is a smart play. Um, do you have like visions of, of the touch points where, it, where it's going to touch the chain versus, you know, Web2? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be quite a complicated uh, mishmash network of smart contracts, oracles interacting with additional APIs and databases. So it does add a layer of complexity to what is you know originally a Web two site. But we want to innovate on these smart contracts and on these NFT types. You know, right now there's been a lot of uh, innovation, um, horizontal innovation, but innovation within say ERC twenty tokens. And, you know, you've seen the 1155, the 721, the ERC-20, the original token. We want to begin to construct one of these ERC standards for property, for real estate and for travel. So, hmm. you know, we believe that there's room to create a specific uh, contract that is intended for a specific use case. So I think... In the future, there is going to be specific contracts for many specific use cases. So, for example, for ticketing, for events, um, specific NFTs that track luxury goods, specific NFTs that track climate change, uh, NFTs that represent carbon credits, NFTs that represent higher ticket purchases like cars. I think there's going to be a range of specific use cases, and we want to create the NFTs that relate to travel and real estate. So creating a specific NFT that is purpose-built for the transaction of rental agreements between a tenant and a landlord. Essentially getting rid of the real estate agent in the middle there, it can be a decentralized open-source marketplace where people can just, it's, you know, it's a boilerplate um, contract that people can fill in on both sides, and then it increases increases uh, transaction efficiency by, again, an order of magnitude. So I think wherever you apply NFTs where there is a use case for them and you take the time to develop a specific contract for that use case, we're going to see order of magnitude improvements all along the transactional economies of the internet. And that's what I'm really excited for so that we can begin to develop the railways on which the travel and real estate world is going to run in Web3. That is so exciting. You, th this is amazing. Um, I'm pretty blown away right now, honestly. Um, just so that anyone listening can have a baseline to be able to keep up with our conversation, can you explain those different contracts that you uh, were just detailing and what you're looking to build with the, with the different contracts specifically for travel and real estate? Sure. So, you know, an, an ERC-20 uh, uh, token, I suppose it is a contract, um, is, is probably the most basic form of um, contract right now. So a lot of, you know, cryptocurrencies, Dogecoin is a great example. I believe that's an ERC-20 token. Um, there's a lot of it, essentially it just creates a, an, so it's a fungible token. So there's many of them that are the same and it creates, you know, I think there's a trillion or hundred billion or however many dogecoin there is in existence it's very simple you can send them to and from wallets they can be used to transact things they have a value in the market then an, an nft contract like a, a 721 specifies the non-fungible aspects of the token so this leads to things such as the board ape yacht club where the contract specifies you know an algorithm which constructs together bits of art to randomly assemble a set of 10,000 images so that's a one use case of a contract uh, other nfts that i've seen in use uh, for example a gary v's uh, vcon ticket so the v friends these nfts represent three individual tickets to an event and these are non-fungible they're assigned to a wallet address uh, things can be updated or you could airdrop people. It's a, it's, it's a way of verifying ownership of something digitally. 
we want to create a version of this that is for uh, a specific use case of, for example, a rental agreement. So all of the things that define legally how a rental agreement works right now, uh, the terms between a tenant and a, and a landlord, for example, what happens if you, know, you have a party and the place gets ruined? Who pays for the damages? How does the security deposit work? What are the terms of leasing the house? How long does it? We want to construct an NFT that is specifically used for this. So it's got enough um, leeway in it that it can be rewritten or it could be extended or it could be re-rolled over time. So the NFT could be renewed after a period. It would require, say, a multi-sig transaction. Both the landlord and the tenant would have to sign this. There's a lot of considerations into play, but it's taking into how these contracts work right now digitally and just terraforming them into something that would work for real estate and travel. Fuck, that's awesome. That is really thoughtful. Honestly, like so many of the things that I've, I've looked at in the, in the market, and by market I mean Web3 here, um, are not thinking about it as thoughtfully as you are right now. Um, and in constructing contracts as the means to actually interface with the blockchain. And, and you, okay, so usually it's, oh, oh, there's these other contracts, 172 or 175, whatever. Um, let's pick it up, let's write it, let's create an NFT so that it's a, you know, one of whatever so that I can, you know, get in on the art scene or whatever, the, whatever they're trying to do. Um, like, a, there is a lot of grift happening right now. I'm actually extremely bullish on Web3, but uh, right now I think it's like any technology um, when it first gets out into the market, it blows up. A lot of people jump into it. Um, I think right now we're in a, a midst of a market correction with Web3, um, where there's kind of a thinning of the herd is what I was talking to a friend last night about it, actually. Um, you know, in which a lot of, of these companies in Web3 that were essentially just building Web3 because it was a hot term. Um, like, you know, a couple mm. of years ago, well, this is almost like over 10 years ago at this point, uh, user experience was the hot term. And there's a lot of companies that came up, a lot of apps that came up that were just <laughs> touting user experience and, and yeah. using it as a plug word. Um, in the industry right now, product is another term that's being plugged yeah. in everywhere just so much that yeah. it means absolutely fucking nothing. And utility is a big one that I see thrown <laughs> around all over the place right now. I think it, a few months ago, it was Metaverse. It was yeah. a big one. Everybody's building a Metaverse company. Like you just attached Metaverse to the front as a suffix <laughs> to like the, your company name. 10 million valuation instantly. You know, yeah. no product, just a couple guys sat in their basement. And, you know, <laughs> I think utility is going to be the meta going forward for the next six to nine months, potentially. Probably. And that's probably because of the uh, market correction that's happening yep. where it's, you know, it's not just squiggles on a piece of paper, which honestly, like people give NFTs a lot of shit because most of the time the ones that go viral are the ones that are like the worst examples of what you can buy or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, like even, okay, Gary V's is a great example. I, I uh, found out about his uh, conference that was happening a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was actually happening in Minneapolis. Um, and I, have, I work with some people who live there and they were like, oh my God, this is going on. And I was like, oh, I'm just curious to see, like, you know, if it, if buying an NFT from Gary Vee is cheap enough, I might just buy one and give it to him just to, yeah. so they can go to the conference and see what it's like. Um, and the cheapest one I found was like a squiggly caterpillar that looked like gross and very simple. Um, and it was like, you know, a thousand dollars or something, <laughs> which which I think is the example that most people kind of cling to um, or even board Eight yacht club where it's like, you know, I think. I don't know how many millions the most one went for, but it went for, you know. Yeah, I think it was like 26 million or something like yeah. that. Which is ridiculous because it's just like, you know, an auto-generated image. Well, I mean, it's okay. It's ridiculous to me because I would put that money into something and, and probably the most outlandish thing I would buy is like a, you know, uh, old school Fiat that's been, uh, you know, 
souped up like crazy or something like that. That's probably what I would go with. Um, but whatever, like, you know, humans are cultural you know, species. So like what we find value in is what we find value in. And who am I to judge if you want to spend $26 million? Oh, on I, a, I, yeah, I, I think the, the, the extreme end of any NFT collection is always going to seem ridiculous, even to the people who own the core of that collection. So I think yeah. right now, Bored Apes are sat at about, I think it's 80 or 90 Ethereum. And one Ethereum right now, at least in my currency, is worth about one and a half thousand pounds. So I think a board ape right now, is, let's say, give it a value of one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. You know, about one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. That's yeah, you can pretty much ridiculous. double that for USD. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that might seem ridiculous, but for somebody who might spend that money on a Ferrari instead. <laughs> The board ape is almost going to bring... Like, why do you buy a Ferrari? You know, a BMW even is fine, or a Tesla, or whatever. There's a lot of cars, but why would you buy a Ferrari? It's mainly going to be because how other people see you in it. And yes. we are animals, going back to our tribal roots thousands of years ago, that it was all about how you were seen by other people. I think communication wasn't so much a part of it, or rather communication was a part of it, but is how do you communicate? So we have a tendency to gravitate towards status symbols, Ferraris, Rolexes, designer clothing. And I think bored apes, you know, that category of NFTs are just another iteration of the traditional status symbols. And when there's a set number, there's only going to be 10,000. You've just joined an exclusive club. You've joined an exclusive club that people look in on from the outside and want to be part of. So, you know, that is how p things are assigned value. It's supply and demand, but it's also how the market sees it. And it, it's become a status symbol right now. Oh, 100%. Honestly, you, you said it again better than I could have. Um, you know, putting that succinctly into a story is um, I heard some I, I, where I work. I sometimes brush shoulders with people who are like incredibly wealthy. Um, and somebody said this to me once and they said, uh, never buy a Corvette because everyone knows that you're new to money. And the thing that's <laughs> funny to me about that is if you look at like a mid-engine you know 2022 corvette it's bet it's as good as any comparable ferrari that you could get practically mm. outside of like the really really crazy ferraris like until you start getting to the point where you have to know somebody at ferrari to be able to <laughs> buy that ferrari that corvette is probably going to be just as good if not better um and honestly probably last longer even though i hate chevrolet's um than any ferrari would but like you said it's the status it's the dancing pony it's the ferrari red you know, it's the, the tuning of the engine to sound like a Ferrari. Um, and then, you know, coming in and having that, you know, fancy looking, fancy sounding car that you, you know, wear clothes to match it. Um, it's the status of it, right? And if it's a squiggly piece of line that gets me into a conference that instantly, okay, like here's another example. Um, we met some close friends of ours because we, I was wearing barefoot shoes and I was in uh, like a very particular type of barefoot shoes. Um, they're called earth runners or like sandals. Um, and I was wearing mm. them in a burger place we like to go to in our town. And the table next to us was a couple and they were like both wearing those shoes. And we ended up be, be, uh, instantly finding out mm. we have a lot in common because of our shoes. Right. Um, the same is true. If I buy an NFT from Gary V and I show up at a conference, I automatically know that there's a group of people here, probably back to our tribal roots that I can converse with and I have things in common with. Um, and it is a part of a club, but we know we're, we're part of this like closed little fun little community. Um, and we're going to be able to know, well, now we have something to talk about. Now we are able to converse, um, you know, exchange about, ideas. It's, yeah, it's about identity. It's, yeah, it's about identity. Right. And, you know, we, ha you know, there's a lot of theories on how we individually see ourselves and how we have our, you know, self-perception, how we build up our internal identity. 
but a big part of that is due to reflections off of others. You know, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, you know, the things you do, they all provide that, you know, initial reflection that you get back from others. And you can build up your identity from, you know, an amalgamation of these different things. NFTs are just another part of that, but for the digital world. And this is where it gets really interesting, because if you look at a graph showing how much time people spend online over the past, you know, 20 years, 30 years, I guess, since the Internet originally came about, it is just a straight line going up, essentially. And I think we are starting to get very, very, very close to the point. If not, we may have passed it already, where people spend more of their waking hours online you know, rather than not online. So people spend more time either on their computers or their phones or watching TV than they do not. And that's a huge jump because if we're talking about status symbols and people, you know, wanting to show off all these things, then you're going to have to start doing that online. So maybe now the designer clothes, the Ferrari, isn't as important as it was if you're spending more of your time online. So NFTs are literally going to be these new status symbols moving forward. You know, you can map this out into the future when the metaverse, it's a buzzword right now, but there is going to come a time when it's not a buzzword anymore and when it's real and when it is that level that people put on their AR glasses and they work from their living rooms and it beams them into a big room full of other people. That is going to be the reality and it's coming and it's probably going to come sooner than people think. And, you know, a possible uh, way of how that will work will be things will be represented through NFTs. That will be, you know, your meta, the shoes that you wear in these digital worlds, the clothing you wear, your house, whatever the the uh, layout is, NFTs may rese- uh, represent that. So all these board ape pictures, these early formations of NFTs, they're historical and it provides a great baseline layer for understanding how the, the socioeconomic realities of this will work in the future. Yeah, no, that is all. Yeah, you're you're painting a, I, I think a reality that's coming. Um, you know, one of the things you said about identity. Uh, there's this author that I like a lot, uh, Admin Maloff. He has this book uh, in the name of identity that I always tell anybody who's interested to read. Um, but in it, he says that you construct your identity um, in regards to the other of what you're not versus what you are. Um, and I think that that plugs in exactly with what you're saying. And then furthermore, uh, you know, onto the point of kind of digital native, you know, being more native in a digital world, um, you know, your experiences, more of your time being spent in that place. Um, I think it's coming. And, and another part of it that I think is really interesting and fascinating with the blockchain is because of smart contracts and the ways you're able to automate them and have them kind of work for you. Um, some of your online presence might not actually be happening while you're actually online. Like, you know, you can go for a walk with your dog, but you have something that's, you know, a contract that's set up to transact things for you given certain situations. And it's out there doing that regardless of if you're around or not or if your computer's on or not, um, so on and so forth, because the contract is written in, into the decentralized net um, and it'll transact or, you know, hit or happen regardless of if you're actually there pushing it, um, let alone what you were saying, which is like, you know, my you know, wristwatch in, you know, my meeting room is some type of special NFT that's, it's not a Rolex, it's whatever it may be, but it's some type of thing that's cool, that's a talking point uh, to spark conversation or whatever it is that I want to kind of express. Yeah, yeah. And it, there, there is the counter argument to my point that I want to include for sake of diversity of viewpoints, which is, you know, this is all artificial scarcity at the end of the day. You know, why 
it's uh, worth asking that question, why do we have to artificially restrict the sale of virtual goods? when something could be replicate, replicated infinite times inside any digital construct, why is it that we're going to essentially transition our way of living in the physical world and move this over to the virtual worlds? And I like this viewpoint because it makes you question, you know, the morality of how we should approach any, you know, fast approaching, complicated digital constructs that we build as a society. Do we want to just simply create an Earth V2 and just, you know, create a, a parallel version of the way that the world works right now? Or do we want to create something which may be seen as more idealistic? And we don't have to pay $8,000 for a digital Pate Philippe watch. Instead, you can dress up however you like because it's the ultimate expression of freedom. You know, it's worth taking all of these factors into account. And... My mind is split because I love the technology that NFTs represent and I love the way that they've allowed creativity to flourish online in ways that I haven't seen before. But it's also definitely worth taking into account and building this into our plans that maybe it's better to allow ultimate freedom online rather than restricting people along the same lines of thought that restricts them, you know, offline. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this dilemma, but uh, my mind is more set towards using NFTs for their true purpose, which is utilitarian contracts. I think the underlying technology, this has been a great cultural introduction to the world through these viral art sensations and these exclusive clubs and, the, you know, these wacky artwork. That's fine. That's a great introduction to sort of get the ball rolling down the hill. But now that there's enough attention and awareness, I think the, the use case, the ideal use case of NFTs should transition away from exclusivity and artificial scarcity and into more utility-based products and services. Yeah, I have so many thoughts on this. Um, I think both need to exist. I, I think, and I think both are likely to exist, honestly. I think NFTs as utility um, makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it's, uh, I think it's a way better way of going about just architecting anything um, and bridging the divide between digital and physical in such a way that creates an immense amount of value that previously just wasn't even there. Um, you know, like being able to have a profile somewhere that I control um, that shows like, oh, these are all the concerts I went to. This is the sports games I went to. And then somebody can go through or, you know, the things I've won on video games or whatever it may be, places I've traveled to, places I've stayed. Uh, and then people being able to go in there and be like, holy shit, you were at game six. And then all of a sudden having that be like, you know, because somebody else is geeked into, you know, the bulls or whatever it may be. Um, and be able to have that kind of deeper sense of connection with somebody because of that, of that being out there, um, I think is, is awesome. Or, you know, having it be your ticket into someplace, um, you know, or any other means of, of kind of that utility of it, I think is awesome. I, I think from the cultural side of things, well, first off, I think humans are a deeply cultural uh, species. Um, I think, you know, rituals within animals kind of exist but i think the interesting thing with humans is how how our culture evolves and it evolves faster like our software um evolves far faster than our hardware i think that's actually what our hardware is evolved for is for us to be able to have cultural um, means to be able to adapt to our environment which is why we've become a you know a global species um now when it comes to like the the scarcity or, or the freedom versus um, restriction um i think kind of like what you're saying where it, things tend towards monopoly. Um, I think 
things tend towards um, an upwards transfer. So, you know, it, the board at Yacht Club is a great example. You know, it's, it's essentially now only for folks who have the means to be able to purchase something that's that expensive, right? Um, and then that club becomes starting to look a little bit like groupthink. Um, I could give some criticisms for that group. I'll kind of stop short of doing that. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's something that's going to happen regardless. Now, I tend towards the far end of it with the freedom side of things. I think what you were talking about is to play devil's advocate um, is where I would like to see. But I think the reality is, is that if you move towards that place, um, it ends up becoming a different means at the same end. Um, and what I would like to see is for us to adopt a culture within Web3 in which, you know, we have the utility side of things um, and then we have the, you know, status or, you know, uh, I don't know, fun side of things, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. Um, and that those people in those communities try intentionally to open it up to others. So if you are in an exclusive club of, I'll stop using the board eight, but maybe you know, there's a new type of car that comes out that's similar to Ferrari, um, but it's an NFT type thing. And it's something you can use in like a racing game or something. And it's like super exclusive and it's super good. And, um, you know, people are buying it. And it's tens of millions of dollars. I would love it if that community every once in a while chose from a group of people that had no way of being able to access that community and gave them one for free. Hey, you get this and, and giving it back in such a means. And that becomes you know, a cultural norm. Um, there's a story that I heard about a Native American group whose name I, I, I fail to remember, um, who recognized the fact that between their their band of chiefs, um, occasionally the resources would get completely controlled by a, a handful of them. So let's just say there's a hundred chiefs um, of different tribal bands, um, and four of them would end up owning the majority of wealth. Well, in those times when that would happen, they would come together as a group. And your status was now judged not by how much resources you had, but by how much you gave away. So, you know, they actually created a culture in which spreading the wealth out so that everybody was able to keep up with everybody was the cultural norm. Not, I have a lot and I want to, you know, go into my base animal programming of, well, I want to make sure I get to keep this. Because that's what my biology is going to tell me. I need to keep this to stay safe. There's going to be barbarians over the hills. Um, you know, even my friends may come and take it. Um, so I would like to see us as a culture, because I think the only way we can do it is by culture and not by technology. Technology tends to, you know, follow utility and then get reflected back into kind of the same norms that we've seen throughout history. Um, I would love it for Web3 to have a culture in which there's exclusivity. We can't ignore that. We should probably foster that because scarcity and competition are the things that drive innovation. Let's not get away from that. But at the same time, is there a way that we can have a mechanism to include and create this pie bigger? Because you know what? Like, there's a reason why people who go to like Ivy League schools in the States become super wealthy. And I'm telling you, it's not their intelligence, it's their network, right? So is mm -hmm. there a way that we can recognize that and then try to expand the network into people that don't have a chance? Because the, the thing I'll end on is, you know, there's studies that have been done that um, around the, the idea of lost Einsteins. And the concept is how many people are out there that are born into families that don't have the means, mechanisms, or they have certain life experiences that that person could have solved for a unified field theory or some type of a major invention um, or maybe even just produced to a high level, but they weren't able to because of their situations. So is there a way that we can say, OK, one end of the spectrum there's a lot of wealth generation from scarcity and competition. 
the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of people who get left out of that. Is there a way that we can try to bridge those two together in a cultural means to then perpetuate it going on so that we get the best of both worlds? There was such a plethora of uh, subjects touched upon there. I'm not quite <laughs> sure which to go down. Um, th- th- this is, uh, I- I- I'll tell you where um, my thinking goes with that. There is a structure right now in society that rewards a very specific path taken in life. Right now that focuses on how much value can you contribute to society and the way that we structure this is through businesses and through entrepreneurship and through driven individuals who can create something that has been never done before. It's the zero to one kind of thing that Elon Musk when he came along and revolutionized electric cars he's now the richest man in the world because he created Tesla and the CEO of SpaceX and all those different companies when Bill Gates decided to design the world's best operating system that set the precedent for our computing systems that still exist today he was rewarded for it the same thing with you know Apple and Steve Jobs the pattern continues and continues it's interesting how you bring up the fact that it would be a great way, you know, like those uh, old tribal leaders, to integrate giving back and redistributing wealth as an, as, as an inherent status symbol in our society. Right now, and I've always been confused by this, because it's an interesting thought experiment when you think about billionaires. And obviously a lot of their wealth is tied up in stocks and everything, but they do have means to be able to do fundamentally... To, to make massive differences to large swaths of the population. And an interesting example for this is Bill Gates. And I like to focus on Bill Gates because he has almost single-handedly eradicated polio um, from a lot of the world. And yet, when I talk to people about this, and there is data that show how much his foundation, how many billions he's donated, and the, the great work that they've done around the world, is everybody paints him as a villain. No matter what he does, there's this perpetuating narrative that these billionaires are, and I'm not going to talk about what I don't know, but that they're evil and that nothing they do benefits anybody around the world. And if you talk about some of the good things that they do, then the narrative gets repainted as a negative. It's, uh, it's about creating a cultural shift where we understand, and I think a lot of the problem arises from people not being taught e- economics, not being taught fundamental uh, business principles and not understanding what the true problems in the world are. I think to address this problem, it's about re-establishing education so that people can understand why people become wealthy. You know, how is it that the world evolves? How to create great innovations? Why does the world keep on ticking along and is now accelerating at a rising pace? You know, technology is exponentially getting better. Systems are exponentially becoming more complex. Uh, As a society, we are culturally evolving to become more homogenous you know teaching kids going through schools why these great processes these macro processes happen i think allows you to understand and process the micro processes that happen in your own life the the, the decisions that you make and the viewpoints that shape you through, throughout growing up get shaped by the way that you understand the macro world around you and when you don't understand the macro world around you that's put that puts you at a disadvantage in your own personal life So to create a society where people are fundamentally more generous, thinking about the bigger picture, how can we up-level all of society, it requires this bigger picture education that is just missing right now. Completely agree. I wish that everyone had a more basic understanding of um, economics. I I think people would be questioning our current global inflation crisis right now 
um, in a fundamental way if they had that type of understanding. Um, though I do think it's the way that I'm talking about it is less about billionaires because I think that there's something about scale that gets very tricky. Um, and when you're dealing with money at scale, I think it gets very tricky. Um, and in Bill Gates in particular, I won't go too hard on you for him. I'm bringing him up, but Bill Gates in particular, um, you know, he's not that great of a computer programmer. His father was an investment banker. He started Microsoft by purchasing MS DOS. He purchased DOS from somebody labeled it as Microsoft. I'm not saying he didn't do any programming himself, but how he got to be where he was, was more because of his father's, you know, I mean, growing up with his father clearly and having that type of investment, um, angle to things. And he's far more of a businessman and in timing than he was like an engineer, right? Oh, like I'm with Elon you there. Was... I'm with you there. Mm -hmm. I think that the talent of these people is their ability to create a vision and then execute micro actions to enable that larger vision. I think all of these men believed in what they were going to create and never wavered in that vision. I think that's what's really rare. 100% completely agree with you. And I think he's an amazing figure in all of history. But I think the thing that gets dangerous with scale is what you're able to do with it. So, you know, Bill Gates at writing a check and being able to influence polio also means he can influence something that potentially could have an order of magnitude worse effect as opposed to decentralizing it. Like, I wish that the mindset of giving back was decentralized um, and not thought of in these large, you know, individuals with large amount of capital because, you know, it's it gets quite tricky with what they're able to do at scale. Um, and that's the part where I, I start to get concerned, um, most particularly. I, I think Bill Gates has done a lot of great things, sure. You know, he's done a lot of things with um, polio, to your example. Um, but he's also made a lot of money off of it. And he's made a lot of money off of global health. So it's not, it, it gets tricky when you talk about people yeah. with money well, at scale I, like that. I'm always careful not to insert opinions into these things that I talk about. I seek to understand why things happen so that we collectively can sort of begin to move towards the right path. You know, there's many things that really need improvement, especially in the way that wealth is, like decentralization, you know, take an example of um, non-profit organizations that are trying to do good around the world. Open up their account books, yeah. decentralize this, open source accounting across the entire world's nonprofit organizations. These people do not know how to spend money. There should be top business leaders and economists who are incentivized with the status we were talking about earlier to be really leading these impactful change organizations. We've set it up so that wealth is the ultimate milestone of success, the ultimate measurement stick of success. Really, we need to switch this around so that the ultimate measurement of success is how much good you have done to people across the world people that by no fault of their own just you know the birthplace lottery that we all draw have been put into poverty or famine or any number of other situations and really it's that we if you answer the question of do you want a better world where people are more equally given the same opportunities with anything other than fuck yes you know <laughs> then you're on the wrong side of history Totally. No, yeah, and that's, and yes, and that's exactly, you actually got to the point where I was driving to, which is decentralize things more, open more things up, um, because if you have, you know, honestly, the world is going to change by having millions of, of people working at a very small scale towards achieving beneficial ends for people for no other means other than just trying to have more, more beneficial ends to people um, than by big swaths of, of you know, writing checks at, at the top end. 
um, because it was like, like I'm going to go back again to scale. Scale just makes everything tricky. Um, and when you're talking about centralized scaling, which was what happens when you give large amounts of money to a nonprofit or you set up an organization towards a single end, um, and you, a lot of times you're actually removing competition from that. Um, and people tend to, especially, I think this goes back to the, the education piece, you know, competition is looked at in such a negative way now, as opposed to, okay, well, competition is a good thing because it gets the best out of everybody. What are the, what are the rules of the game and what are we playing towards? That's what we should be talking about. Not necessarily if we should be competing or not. It, it, we need a, a decentralized architecture. We need a new, a, a fundamentally rewrite the ways of doing things. I think we can ascertain that, you know, nonprofits in their current organizational form, they're isolated from each other. It's, you know, people almost competitive over the data that they share because they want one, they want their charity to be more visibly successful than another. I think the problem, the way we can get around this is with a DAO. And obviously DAOs are a little bit of a rabbit hole to go down. I know we don't have too long left to record, but these decentralized autonomous organizations that work on a sort of a mutable permissionless system means that if you set it up correctly, every person within the DAO who contributes, whether by adding money to a pot or whether it's performing some kind of action that can then be verified on the blockchain, everybody gets an equal vote. And they've proven that they care about the issue of the DAO by their contributions to it. It could even be set up with a rule that, you know, the more you contribute actions, not money, is measured in a way that gives you more influence over the, the future actions. So there is, it's about creating incentivization structures to replace the ones that we have today and doing this in a very considerate way. I think DAOs will likely replace non-profit groups at some point in the future. Timelines are a very fickle thing, though, and there's a number of, you know, converging and confluencing factors that, you know, dictate the, the way things come to be in the future. But DAOs are, again, an order of magnitude improvement over the organizational structures we've been using for a long, long time. I think many companies will even have a community-led DAO, you know, to move them forward in certain ways. I think governments, forward-thinking governments, we may see new cities where their council is composed of a DAO that efficiently allocates capital around the city as and where needed, and that's informed by a network of oracle nodes around the city that's, that monitor data. AI can inform this to intelligently drive decision-making. You know, there is an entirely new paradigm of the way that I see smart cities evolving, people coming together with the technology we create to invent a better future for all of us. And this is what is powerful. And this is what I'm driving towards, you know, going right back to where we started, um, dropping out of university, doing a bit of social media marketing, and then stumbling across this meeting, creating Stay365, discovering Web3 NFTs and crypto. It, you know, I, I don't see myself working on Stay365 forever. And I would like the technology that we're deploying here to be a learning experience. How do we use these, these structures of tech, these NFTs, these DAOs, to slowly start iterating on, you know, non-profit organizations, smart city planning? And I'm here for the fucking ride. Dude, that is awesome. No, and I, can, I am right there with you, honestly, in everything that you just said. Um, I think DAOs are probably going to be, in my opinion, the biggest revolution from blockchain because of what organiz like how I've done so many digital transformations of companies that are any anywhere from 10 years old to 100 years old that want to transform digitally and go from like paper processes that were just printed onto <laughs> digital means and, and interfaces yeah. to now actually like bringing in automation and all those things. 
And honestly, I think whole orgs of companies should be operating as a DAO. It would make so much more sense if you know internal organizations and processes and all of that was was done through a DAO. It, it is such an an order or two of magnitude improvement in how to be able to interface from people to people in a means of either a, a, an innate hierarchy that you're creating because of you know, like you said, like you've interact more or whatever you want to write into the contract of how the DAO is structured um, all the way through, you know, how to access it, how to get involved with it, how to how to spread out, you know, like social media is, a, is an amazing example of what happens when you, you have a, a certain scale of people that are working together. Like the Streisand effect is always a funny one for me. You know, Barbara Streisand buys this house. She doesn't want people to talk about where it is on the Internet. All of a sudden it blows up and more people are talking about it um, or or everything from you know, like how hard it is now to get away with bullshit because people will just like in mass dig through things. And then before yeah. you know it, like it, they're finding something right that you weren't expecting to see. Um, now imagine having that harness in a way that there's rules as to how to engage, how to, how to do, how to effectively mean a, meet a goal. Like the DAO is essentially saying, this is what the goal of this organization is. Now the structure in such a way to achieve this goal um, in a way that we have an organizational or governmental structure to me, you know, like in the ancient world, when they would talk about the constitution in the sense that we talk about it, mm -hmm. right? Like the Magna Carta or the U S constitution, they actually referred to it in the body of the constitution, the body of the people and, you know, the movement. And then it was a, an actual revolution in the means of thought of saying, we're going to write this down now. Cause like the Roman empire had a constitution, but it wasn't written, right? The constitution was the res publica, like the people, the body, right? We're then having it written down as a means of being able to legislate and understand freedoms and, and abilities was a huge revolution. And I think in such a way that that was a revolution is now we're truly getting into a digital revolution of the same means of, well, now that we've had the idea of writing it down in a piece of paper, let's bring it into the digital world, which means we have automation, which means we have, you know, eventing things changing over time, manipulating it and, and a scale that was otherwise unachievable. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's that's a super interesting point. I think the we the, there's questions that we have to answer, and there's questions and answers that people are going to have to come to terms with, in order to migrate over to a DAO. Because you know, fundamentally, it works and it doesn't work along two uh, paths. Because people want to feel a part of something, and a DAO provides that potentially better than a company can. You know, company culture is a big thing. Can you transition that into a DAO? And I think people will be fearful of that change because it takes away some of the human elements of working together and replaces them with a soulless contract. But it's about constructing these things in a meaningful way so that that transition from company to DAO can happen. There's also going to need to be questions answered along the lines of, well, there are some CEOs and there are some people that have spent their lives climbing these corporate ladders and now have a lot of influence. Structurally, a DAO doesn't allow this same level of influence. So I think there's going to be pushback from people who have vested interests in the old way of doing things. The same things we see with oil companies and tobacco companies, all these old traditional interest uh, industries that don't want to give up 
their market share. They don't want to give up their influence. So they run, you know, scam stories and hit pieces on the newest companies coming into market. You know, they diversify their business holdings. And I'm sure there's so much other shady dealings that we don't get to hear about, right? Behind closed doors, deals being made. DAOs represent a seismic shift in the business landscape and how companies operate. And you can bet both our asses that there is going to be pushback. There is going to be people who do not want this transition to take place. So I think really it's people deciding, you know, you said earlier that you define yourself by what you're not. And, you know, if you're defining yourself by the fact that you don't want to fit the traditional conformist way of running a traditional company and you want to, I think people will define themselves by being supporters of DAOs. And people who hate that new way of doing things will define themselves as being traditionalists. So there is going to be a war between these two sides over the next decade or two. And, you know, it's anybody's guess who will win. But I think we've seen it, this pattern play out over and over again, is that disruptors and better technologies and better systems have to win out in the end. It's almost a law of nature. The iterative progress beats traditionalist mentalities time and time and time again yeah i couldn't agree with you more and and my hope for this moment in time is that we're able to have such a plethora of information and examples of how what you just described is the norm that is the status quo the status quo is that whatever is the you know um incumbent is going to fight like hell and fight dirty to stay that way i mean a great example is the tucker car in america you know it was i think the 60s this guy Tucker came up with this car company. It was amazing, but the big three, as they're called, GM, uh, Ford, and I think uh, Dodge or Chrysler, uh, came together to to kill it. And this car was uh, orders of magnitude better than any other one before it. You know, it had seatbelts before anyone else had seatbelts. It had, you know, lights that would turn when you went around corners so that you could see around the corner better. And and various other innovations. Um, it ran far better than any other ones, but because it was a challenge to the status quo they fought like hell and you know i think that that's kind of the challenge for web3 is you you have the means at your disposal you know in the internet age of all this information to be able to construct this mm. and fight it in a way that transcends what was ever being able to achieve before um now it's just let's put our feet in the ground and get working right and this all starts from web3 this all starts from the introduction of NFTs. This all starts from stupid fucking animal cartoons transacted over the internet. You know, in 30 years time, when we look back and we retrace the history of how the new, the new structural economy of DAOs came into being, it will be traced all the way back to memes on Twitter being shared around, people having a good time. I think that's where things have to totally. be born from. They have to be born from optimism and positivity and maybe a little bit of fucking around. But, you know, I can't wait to be developing some of the infrastructure for this, you know, at least within our little sector of real estate and travel. And I can't wait to see what the future holds for this technology as a whole. I am um, unstoppably curious and unstoppably optimistic about this. And, you know, I can't wait to build with other like-minded people in the space. Me too. And I'm very grateful that we got a chance to talk. Um, we could definitely pause it there. That's a, a great place to end. I'm excited to watch to see what more you're going to do in your career as well as what you're going to do at th Stay 365. 
Um, I'm excited to see how that's going to blow up and I'm definitely going to be following you guys along very closely. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. If anybody's made it this far into listening, then follow me on Twitter. There's going to be a link somewhere. Come check out what we're doing at Stay365. And our token sale is going to be on the 29th of June. So this is your chance to own a little piece of Stay365 and what we're doing. You know, you could even think it as pre-buying a holiday for in a few months time when you can actually pay for bookings using our token. So however you want to see it, join, come and join our Web3 economy over at Stay365. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for hosting me. I've absolutely loved being on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, you too. If you like what you hear, please tap that follow or subscribe button. You also can find this episode, all episodes in the series, or check out our daily minute podcast by visiting us at bandwidth.productions.